Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Care for Your Bones During and After Cancer Treatment, Tips to Improve Your Bone Health. This is a very important program, and it's one that we would really like to offer much more often, let me put it that way, because it's so important, both for people undergoing treatment and people who are cancer survivors. Um, and for everyone, actually, it's a, these are, this is a very important topic. Um, and we're delighted today to be partnering with um, the um, American Bone Health um, uh, Organization um, because they actually um, – it's a specialty area of theirs, and they've really helped to spread the word about the program as well and extend the scope of it. And you'll be hearing from um, their staff later in the program. Um, we have on the program today over 402 participants, and you come from all over the United States, so from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Caracas, India, Iraq, Portugal, Slovenia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, actually quite a global call. Today's program is supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best, and we're delighted to have been able to assemble them all, frankly, and it's wonderful. Um, so our first speaker is Dr. Joseph Lane. Dr. Lane is Professor of Orthopedic Surgery, Assistant Dean Medical Students, HSS, Hospital Special Surgery, Wild Cornell Medical College, Chief Metabolic Bone Disease Service, Hospital for Special Surgery. And Dr. Lane is really going to set the stage for this whole program. He's going to talk about an overview of bone health, imaging and diagnostic tests to measure your bone density, guidelines to manage bone health, tips for taking care of your bones, and tips to reduce bone complications and fractures. All very important topics, and it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lane. Thank you, Carolyn. So we're going to have a, a, a large area to cover, and we're going to try to hit some of the highlights in this area. So bone health is very important, uh, particularly in cancer patients, because of the medicines that you are taking, the disease process that you've been through or going through. And our goal is to try to make the skeleton a, a, a strong structure that's going to withstand any problems that it faces. Now, the key element why we're concerned about bone health is if you take a look at patients who have had hip fractures, patients who have had cancer in their recent history have a slightly increased risk of getting a hip fracture, and they don't perform quite as well. Now, this totally could be corrected and prevented, and that's what we're going to try to talk about today. So what is bone health? Bone health is the strength of the bone, and the strength of the bone is related to the uh, the bone mass or the amount of bone and the quality. Quality is like you have a block of iron and a block of aluminum. Aluminum is not as strong as iron. So our goal is to try to make the bone strength as great as possible so you will not have a low-energy fracture. The easiest way to look at this is to ask the question, have you had a low-energy fracture? If you've had a simple fall and fractured something of major, a major bone, this indicates that something may be wrong with your skeleton. Another way to look at this is to get what we call is a bone density. A bone density will determine the bone mass. It has very little radiation and will tell you the amount of bone in your, in your thigh bones and in your spine other parts of your body, and this is used by your physicians in determining risk and determining treatment modalities. So we start by getting a bone density. How accurate it? Well, there are some things that are artifacts, but in a good setting, you will be able to get around the problems and be able to get a, a, a true a judgment. Now, using that material, another way we look at this 
is getting the history. There are risk factors that increase the chance of you getting a fracture. They include uh, low, low body weight, whether you have had a fracture before, whether your mother or father have had a low energy fracture, whether you've taken steroids, which is used commonly in the treatment of, of cancer. Are you take, uh, do you have autoimmune disease, such as rheumatoid arthritis? How much do you drink? A couple of glasses of wine are okay, but do you take more than that? And uh, other secondary diseases, then finally the bone density and smoking. All of these will develop a, a, a story that will give us a risk factor. And if the risk of getting a hip fracture is 3%, uh, in the next 10 years or any fracture in 20 years indicates that we should probably be treating you with something to take care of this. Now, what are the hallmarks of treatment? Well, first of all, you have to have a reasonable amount of calcium. Calcium is the building block upon which bone is made, and you can get calcium. We prefer it in your diet, and there are many places that you can get it in your diet, such as uh, in dairy products, leafy green vegetables, and the National Osteoporosis Foundation has a list of products that are rich in calcium. And then if you can't get it in the in the diet, then we will add calcium in, in a pill. Uh, again, diet is better, but the goal is to get your calcium to a reasonable amount, and that's somewhere between 500, 750 milligrams of calcium a day. Vitamin D. Vitamin D is critical for your muscle strength and is critical for mineralizing bone properly. A very low vitamin D puts you at risk. So basically, we'd like you to get vitamin D, and there's no natural source of it other than cod liver oil and sunlight. But sunlight in New York is only good from April to October, and beyond that, the sun is too low on the horizon. So we usually go to some vitamin D preparations, usually something in the order of 1,000 to 2,000 units a day will do the job. In the setting of cancer, we would recommend at least 2,000 and probably a higher dose, and your doctor will know what the standards are and raise the dose appropriately. And when that's accomplished, then the question is drug therapy. Well, we think about drug therapy as if your bone mass is low or you've had fractures. We also think about this on the medicines you're taking for your cancer. Many of the medicines we use, such as in breast cancer, we use a drug to get rid of estrogen, which drives the cancer. Well, when you have no estrogen, your bone is at jeopardy to some degree. So we need to protect you while you're getting your anti-estrogen therapy. And this is true for patients on prostate cancer and other diseases. So if we see a drug that will lose bone, we will then jump in and offer an, a, a protector that's not going to affect your cancer, or but will, in fact, protect your skeleton. So there are drugs that prevent you from losing bone, and these are the bisphosphonates, Fosamax, Solendronate, Reclast, these kind of drugs. There's a drug called Prolia, which will also prevent you from losing bone. Some of the CIRMs out there will do the same thing. Many of them came out of the cancer world and are anti-cancer drugs themselves. So we take advantage of those drugs, particularly in the setting if you happen to have a cancer. And then there are agents which actually make bone, and these are which can repair your skeleton. We have to be a little bit more careful here. We have to work in partnership with your oncologist to make sure you are getting the right drug and it's not interfering with your underlying uh, disease. But we do have ways to reverse your skeleton, and particularly after your cure from cancer, we can build your skeleton back up to where it normally should be. The final point is, is preventing you from getting a fall. The easiest way to know if you're going to get a fall is to stand on one leg, and the normal person should stand on one leg for 12 seconds without bobbing and weaving. If you can't do that, that means you have a potential to fall. 
And again, we have a whole array of exercises which can teach you to regain your 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 uh, your skill set. And if you still are unsteady, then we would advise using a cane, a walker, rollators. But the point is you cannot get a fracture without falling, and so we need you not to fall. So the bottom line is recognize low bone mass. Two, take take maneuvers to increase the calcium vitamin D. Use selective treatments, which your oncologist clearly knows. And finally, do not fall. I hope we've covered the points, Carolyn. Excellent. Wow, that was fantastic, um, Dr. Lane. Excellent, and excellent setting the stage for the program. So thank you. Um, And I know there'll be questions for you. The questions are actually coming in already um, for this call, so thank you so much. Um, Our next speaker um, is Dr. Lee Schwartzberg. Dr. Schwartzberg is Executive Director, West Cancer Center, Chief Division of Hematology Oncology, Professor of Medicine, University of Texas Health Science Center. Dr. Schwartzberg will be addressing guidelines to manage bone metastases, treatment choices, including clinical trials, controlling pain and side effects, how exercise and physical therapy make a difference, and the role of nutrition. It's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Schwartzberg. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's a true pleasure to be on this call with everyone today and my colleagues who are presenting. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist, and I'm going to shift gears a bit and talk about treatment and uh, focus on bone metastases in patients with cancer. It turns out that the bone is an organ that is very commonly associated with spread of cancer. And uh, although we don't really understand yet fully why, certain cancers are attracted to the bone because of the cells that are there, and they actually set up shop there and work to generate the bone absorption and um, dissolution. So you need to know that, as you heard, the bone is a really active organ. We think about our skeleton as being bone and hard and dry. It's really not true. It's really a very active organ that's continuing to renew itself. And cancer, when it gets to the bone, can actually uh, generate the bone to move too fast in terms of the change in the cells that are coming and the dissolving and the the re-laying down of bone. So this is a very common problem that we have in, uh, in patients with advanced cancer. And we're talking here in general, not about cancers that start in the bone, uh, but cancers that spread to the bone, which is the large majority of the problem that we find in our clinics. So many different types of cancer have this. And once you find bone metastases, there are many different ways to to, uh, address them in ways that can help patients live more productive lives. The first question is how can they be identified? And generally speaking, we use uh, several different types of tests to find out if a patient has bone metastases. Uh, in many cases, patients will have bone will have pain associated with bone metastases, but not always. In certain diseases like breast cancer and lung cancer, we will often do a survey to see if the bone is involved, and that can uh, involve a test like a bone scan, which is a nuclear medicine test, or a PET scan, also a nuclear medicine test, which are very good at identifying deposits in the bone and are usually better than a CAT scan alone, which for the bone um, can sometimes miss lesions. In addition, an MRI scan uh, focused on the bones is very sensitive uh, for telling what's happening with the bone. So those are the typical ways we both uh, diagnose and that we follow patients who have bone metastases. Once we find that there are bone metastases, we think about two broad approaches to treating them. The first is what to do with local or regional treatments. In other words, if you have a spot in a bone that um, is painful, the first thing that typically we'd like to do is relieve that pain. And we can do that with local therapy. The way that we do that is typically with radiation therapy. And radiation therapy gives pain relief to the majority of patients who get radiation. There's typically very few to no side effects associated with radiating a bone. But it can take three to six weeks to see most of the effect and up to six months to see the maximal effect of radiation therapy. 
There's been some change in the use of radiation therapy over uh, the last couple of years. It used to be given in what's called a fractionated system where a small dose was given every day. But recent studies have shown that instead of giving a daily dose for typically about 10 doses, that most people who have asymptomatic bone metastases can achieve the same degree of pain relief with a single dose given. And that's much more convenient for people and less costly, uh, particularly as it relates to people who have trouble with transportation to and from a radiation center. Sometimes we have to do surgery on bone metastases, and that usually occurs when they're in a weight-bearing bone. So if you have a uh, uh, tumor deposit in a bone in the weight-bearing, let's say the femur, the thigh bone, um, with all of the weight of the body on that area, if the metastases has dissolved some of the bone there, the structure will not be effective in maintaining the bone integrity. And so we will frequently do preventative surgery to pin that bone or put a little plate in to stabilize the bone and avoid what's called a pathologic fracture, which is a fracture that occurs doing sometimes nothing at all just from the weight of gravity on a bone that's been compromised. More recent techniques have been very gratifying because they're non-surgical, and this is particularly of use in people who have bone metastases in the spine in, and in their back bones, and those are very common sites of bone metastases. We have uh, the ability from uh, surgeons or from interventional radiologists to do techniques. One is called a kyphoplasty, where literally the bone of the back can be um, can be blown back up if there is a fracture or if there's pain using um, a balloon and cement. And we also use cementoplasty in other parts of the body, like in the pelvic bones, where they can be immediately gratifying in terms of relieving pain as soon as the procedure is done. Finally, we also have another form of radiation that targets the local treatments, although it's given intravenously, which is a, um, a medicine that uses radium, called radium-223, and that's particularly used in prostate cancer patients who have uh, bone metastases that are painful. And that treatment can be given several times, and uh, each time can relieve pain to a greater extent. Now, the problem with uh, bone metastases are what are called skeletal symptomatic events, and those include the pain that we just talked about and the pathologic fracture. But the leaching out of the calcium that was mentioned from that's contained in the bones can cause a high calcium level in the blood, which in and, in and of itself can cause multiple other effects on thinking and on the kidneys. So we try to avoid that. Sometimes the bone, if it presses, particularly in the spine, on the spinal cord, can cause nerve damage, and that can be a very serious complication, so we want to avoid that. And in general, we want to avoid the need for surgery or radiation. So we think at the very onset of um, bone metastases of treating the patient systemically, meaning treating their whole body. Now, that can be done uh, with anti-cancer therapy that is specific for that type of cancer. And of course, we treat a bone metastases ba based on where the original tumor was. So that would be if you have lung cancer that metastasized to the bone, we treat it like lung cancer. And if it's breast cancer metastasized to the bone, we treat it like breast cancer. The treatments for these diseases have gotten much better uh, over the last few years and we've done very well in alleviating the symptoms of bone metastases and can heal bone metastases with anti-cancer treatment. So that's always given. But in conjunction with the specific anti-cancer treatment, we now have systemic therapy that works very well to stabilize the bone. And uh, two major categories of drugs, uh, bisphosphonates, uh, as were mentioned, that are given to stabilize the bone density are also useful for uh, patients who have bone metastases in stabilizing the bone. And typically, we use a drug called uh, zolendronate or zolendronic acid, which is given at first once a month intravenously uh, to patients, and that stabilizes the bone. 
And uh, that's been now given for the last 20 years and has shown great effect. And more recently, we have uh, a drug called denosumab. You heard Prolia is one uh, form of that drug. Another is Exgeva, which is um, a different mechanism of action that works to stabilize the bone. And that drug is given subcutaneously, so it um, obviates the need for intravenous and has less side effects. And also in head-to-head trials with bisphosphonates work somewhat better. So a very convenient and effective drug to reduce skeletal-related events. Um, now, we still don't, we usually continue these therapies for, for uh, a long period of time, um, and the optimal duration is not clear at this time, but they continue to work while they are given. I just want to say a few words about clinical trials. There are lots of clinical trials going on with bone metastases, including new methods of detecting them with PET scans and other local therapies, including high-intensity frequency uh, uh, ultrasound and doing a, a single dose of what's called stereotactic radiation as opposed to standard radiation, and those are showing promising effects. Now, in the interest of time, we can't go into controlling pain beyond uh, what we talked about specifically to the bone, but I do want to emphasize for the audience that cancer pain does not have to be tolerated. We have many different types of drugs that work very well and modalities that work very well on controlling cancer pain. So if I can leave you with nothing else, it's the point that cancer pain can be controlled and we can find methods to do that, whether they're local therapies or drug therapy and usually combinations of the above. You do not have to suffer with cancer pain. Recently, we've learned that exercise and physical therapy are actually good for patients who have bone metastases with the caveat of uh, patients that have those long bone metastases that might be at risk for fracture, actually strengthening the muscles around bone metastases and strengthening your body in general is actually a good thing. It also makes you feel better. And um, somewhat counterintuitively, exercising actually reduces fatigue in the long run that goes along with uh, cancer. And to that end, we also recommend a balanced diet. High-protein diets are often good to help um, restore tissues in the body, including bone tissues and muscle tissues, and particularly when you're taking chemotherapy or other anti-cancer therapy, having a balanced diet with enough calories and with enough protein is very effective. So we really have come a long way in the treatment of bone metastases for cancer, and uh, the future looks bright for this. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Schwarzberg. That was an outstanding presentation. Very wonderful. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Doug Peterson. Um, and Dr. Peterson um, is, um, is Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine, Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, NAE Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Peterson is going to be addressing dental care, including care of your gums and teeth and bones during and after treatment. It's really my great, great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Peterson. Thank you, Carolyn. And it is my pleasure to be participating in today's very important discussion. And over the next few minutes, I'd like to highlight some key issues that address the role of the dentist in preventing and treating bone disease that involves the upper and lower jaw in relation to cancer treatment. And as I go through my remarks, I'm going to refer to the jaw bones as the upper jaw, the maxilla, and the lower jaw called the mandible. And I'd also like to be emphasizing the importance and the value of communicating with your healthcare team throughout your cancer treatment, as well as during the many years after the cancer treatment has been completed. And I'll be touching on this theme uh, over the next few minutes. So, so first, the overall context, you know, how does the dentist contribute to cancer care and helping patients navigate their cancer treatment and, and have a very uh, positive quality of life for many years after? Well, it's important to realize that not all cancers and, and certainly not all cancer treatments cause problems with the mouth, including the upper and lower jaw, either during or after the cancer therapy. 
However, there are three different types of cancer therapies. In the interest of time, I'll just simplify it in that way, that can, in some patients, cause bone problems of the maxilla or the mandible. For example, a patient with head and neck cancer being treated with high-dose head and neck radiation can be at risk, depending on the status of the dentition of the teeth and the, the gums, for a condition of the bone called osteoradionecrosis. Alternatively, patients undergoing high-dose chemotherapy, which can reduce the ability of the white blood cells to fight infection, can develop infections from uh, lesions in the bone that are caused by the teeth or the gums, and in some cases, these infections can spread elsewhere to the body. I'm going to be talking about ways to prevent this and treat this, um, but those are two of the three types of cancer treatments that may affect jaw bones. And then as we've also heard in very elegant way from Drs. Lane and Schwartzberg, there are the bone stabilizing agents, which have tremendous medical benefit in many types of cancer treatments. There is a condition called medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is unique to the oral cavity, unique to the jaw bones, and it can occur in a very small percentage of cancer patients receiving these very important bone stabilizing agents. So anywhere from one to perhaps as high as 3% of patients who are on some of these bone stabilizing agents may develop medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. So we're going to be discussing these three conditions in a little more detail in a minute, but I would like to really uh, emphasize the interprofessional team approach that's brought to give the very best cancer care possible and, and also the tremendous resources available through cancer care and other uh, organizations to help all of us uh, achieve successes in cancer treatment. Now, a minute ago, I mentioned three different types of jawbone diseases that are caused by cancer treatment. And each of these diseases, osteoradionecrosis caused by head and neck radiation, infection of the jawbone in the setting of high-dose chemotherapy and low white blood cell count and function, and also in a very small subset, the medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. All of these conditions are treatable by the oncology team, including uh, the dentist. Having said this, the ideal goal is to prevent these bone problems from developing in the first place. This is a really important concept. And this concept is built on extensive research and clinical experience in the interprofessional cancer care community over many, many years. If the teeth and the gums and the lining tissues of the mouth are stabilized if they're protected before the radiation begins for head and neck cancer, or before the high-dose chemotherapy begins, or before the bone-stabilizing agents begin. This preventive approach before that treatment begins goes a long way to preventing problems in the jaw bones in the months and years later. So again, this is a really, really important concept. It's so much better to prevent the jaw problem, which we typically can do, than having the jawbone problems develop and then need to treat. So just a few words on the head and neck radiation, chemotherapy, and bone stabilizing agent model. If the patient develops osteoradionecrosis of the jaw after high-dose head and neck radiation. Treatment can involve some minor oral surgical procedures, some antibiotics. In some settings, a technique called hyperbaric oxygen is used. It's, it's not always available and is not always uh, uh, any more beneficial than oral surgery and antibiotics. But there are treatment modalities for osteoradionecrosis of the jaw. If an infection develops in the setting of high-dose chemotherapy and low white blood cell count, the infection can come from the teeth or the gums or the lining tissues of the mouth. Antibiotics are often used when the white count is very, very low. And then when the white count returns to normal, the dental procedure can be safely performed, again, in the context of the cancer care team. And as far as the medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw, again, the goal is to prevent this by having a dentist evaluate the teeth and the gums before the oncologist starts the treatment with the bone-stabilizing agent. 
If, in the very unlikely event, the medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw develops, it is typically managed, particularly in the early and moderate stages of the bone uh, condition, in a very conservative way with uh, antimicrobial mouth rinses, antibiotics, and if a small piece of bone begins to poke through the gum, just gentle removal of that small bone. It may take weeks or even several months for the lesion to heal, but often with very, very good success. So as I close, I would like to emphasize that cancer treatment in the realm of head and neck radiation for head and neck cancer, high-dose chemotherapy for hematologic malignancies, for example, or bone-stabilizing agents to protect the skeleton, as we've heard about this afternoon. All of these treatments may impact jaw bones, and by working with the patient and the interdisciplinary cancer team, including the dentist, this can go a long way to enhancing the treatment outcomes of the cancer and the quality of life of, of the patient for many, many years to come. I'm going to stop there, Carolyn, and turn it back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson, um, for that really excellent presentation and really um, a lot of very important information for people to have and to and to work with your dental team and your oncology team and your healthcare team in terms of really getting the very best care. And our next speaker is Kathleen Cody. She's Executive Director, American Bone Health, and she's going to be talking about American Bone Health's free programs um, for you. And so I'm going to. Um, turn this program over to my esteemed ca colleague, uh, Catherine Cody. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you for those great presentations. Um, really appreciate this webinar because we know that um, that people with cancer have fought really hard to ward off that cancer, and we want to make sure that everyone understands how important the skeleton is and that um, taking care of that will help you live a long and strong life. And so American Bone Health does a number of community programs throughout the country, and we talk about fracture risk and nutrition and the importance of balance and strength training at these programs. And if there's not one in your community, we also have a number of tools and resources available on our website, which is AmericanBoneHealth.org. Um, and I'd especially like to point out that we have a, a fracture risk calculator that goes through the number of factors that Dr. Lane mentioned that increase your risk of having a, a broken bone in the next 10 years. And I would really encourage you to go to that tool and see what your fracture risk is and maybe take it back to your uh, physician to talk about uh, some strategies for putting a plan together for your bone health. And we also share lots of tips through our newsletter, so I would also encourage you to sign up to get more information about bone health and what you can do to stay strong um, as you as you get older. Thanks, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that was really wonderful, and it's wonderful working with you, and we will be working with you going forward on all of our bone health programs, so thank you so much. Um, and I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to actually take questions. So I know questions have been coming in actually ever since the program started, so I think um, that please do, um, our, um, Sonia will explain to you as soon as I finish how to queue up for questions, so we can try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, Cancer Care is a national organization. It's primarily staffed by oncology social workers, about 35 of them, and um, we provide all different types of services. You might call it a menu of services, and you can pick and choose which ones are best suited for you. We do offer practical and financial assistance, and we do have a copay foundation as well, so really to help with some of those financial costs. The financial programs are for people in the United States. The other programs are people all over the world. Um, we also offer a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers, either on the telephone or online, and we also have support groups on the telephone online. And the telephone groups and online groups are very popular, particularly the online groups, just because they are non-dependent on time. In other words, you can post any time of the day or night, and indeed they are monitored by the oncology social worker, so they're professionally facilitated. And so many people, I think we have about 138 of them, and they are um, for both um, all different people of all different ages, also for caregivers, for different types of cancer, for young adults, um, 
for older adults, um, for middle-aged adults. Um, we also have a Cancer Care for Kids program. Um, it's primarily for children who really um, necessarily don't have cancer but actually have cancer in their family, and no one really quite knows how to talk with them about what's going on. And so we offer that program. It really helps families and, and children as well and teens. Um, so with all that being said, um, those are a, a bit of a thumbnail sketch of all the different services we offer. They're all free, and you can access them by coming to our website or our toll-free number. And actually, um, and we'll be giving you all that information, all those numbers and resources at the um, when you get your evaluation, um, probably tomorrow for the program. You'll get all those resource information. So now I'm going to turn this over to Sonia, who will explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to ask Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is now open. Hi. I have problems with falling lately. Could it also be a balance issue rather than a bone problem? How can that be determined? And how do I determine if it's a bone problem and not arthritis or bursitis in the skeletal system? Well, thank you for those questions, Emil. Those are good questions. Um, Dr. Lane, do you want to start with that question? Sure. Um, well, uh, bones will not necessarily make you fall. They they will be affected by the fall. So it's usually either your muscle or your nerves are the things that are controlling it. Uh, if you need, you can go to your physician and they can examine you and look for the, look for the the telltale signs of peripheral neuropathy or muscle weakness. Or they can look in your uh, in your ear. Your uh, your middle ear, your ear can be infected and that may be a cause of this. So there's a process which usually goes to a neurologist, a physiatrist or an ENT physician, and they should be able to come to the source of the falls and then develop a strategy to try to reverse that with medicine and or uh, exercise. Excellent. Thank you. Um, excellent question. Excellent answer. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and um, anyone else want to add to that question or no response? Okay. Um, so um, here's another question. Um, I think it's for Dr. Lane as well. Do you suggest taking Fosmax or Boniva? Um, but there's no, if you could just identify what those are and why people well, use them. Well, basically there are three oral bisphosphonates that are commonly used, at least in the United States, and they are Alendronate or Fosmax, uh, Residronate or uh, Actinel or Abandronate, which is Boniva. Some of them have bigger doses than others. The one that most of the data is basically on is Fosamax, and we have uh, we're very comfortable with that particular agent. All of these agents are oral. There are some side effects with them, and some people have indigestion. And when that occurs, we can then go to an intravenous program, such as uh, Reclass or um, uh, Zoledronic acid, so that we have a ways to get around it if you're having indigestion. But they all work very similarly. Some of them have some one advantage over another, and that can be uh, worked out with you and your physician. Uh, but I, uh, I usually say take the simplest one that's easy first, and then if you have a problem with the orals, then we can go to intravenous. Um, well, maybe my colleague... Uh, in, uh, we talked about metastatic disease. Do you prefer the zolandronic acid over the oral pills? Uh, no, Dr. Lane. Um, I I agree with you. I think simpler is better. Um, we do occasionally use Reclass, which is once a year, yeah. um, and it does require intravenous, as you said, and perhaps a little bit more in the way of um, systemic side effects. People sometimes feel like they're having the flu. Uh, Prolia is something that I've been using a lot, particularly in my patients, as you mentioned, who um, are on um, uh, estrogen-depriving therapies and have osteopenia or osteoporosis. Um, that's a, a shot like a flu shot under the skin twice a year, and that's uh, simple. Excellent. Thank you. Um, okay. Um, and um, we have another question from one of our telephone participants. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. 
Thank you so much, Carolyn. This is a seminar I've never heard before, and I really think it's great. I want to thank the doctors. I'm a breast cancer survivor for 13 years, and I have osteopenia that went recently into osteoporosis on the left hip. I have taken a lot with calcium and D, and I'm wanting up several questions. My first question for the doctors is vitamin D raise the calcium because mine was raised, so they reduced the calcium to three times a week. I'm wondering that for other people. And since I have IBS, cannot take the oral medications, and I'm wondering about with the IM, sub-Q, and the IV medications, that there's problems with the jaw, which we talked about, and I do have jaw and TMJ, so I'm wondering if that's a lasting effect that can cause acute necrosis of the jaw from these medications, and I'm wondering if there's such a thing called strontium, there's different other vitamins with the vitamin D that they take a 1,000. I thank you so okay. much. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Okay, lots of questions here. Um, let's see, Dr. Douglas, Dr. Dr. Peterson, do you want to start with the dental part of this? Sure. There is a difference, uh, as uh, Stephanie pointed out, between the oral and the IV. We've heard a little bit about that from our other speakers as well. And the timing of the medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw is in part influenced by whether the uh, bone-stabilizing agent is given orally or intravenously. Um, generally speaking, there are several exceptions to what I'm about to say, but generally speaking, the risk for medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw begins about 18 months to two years after the medication begins. Again, there's several exceptions to that, so I want to represent it fairly. As far as TMJ is concerned, that's a distinctly different lesion. That's a lesion of the uh, jawbone as it's near the ear, the actual joint. And there's very little data demonstrating medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw involving the temporomandibular joint. There's much more data demonstrating medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw of the bone supporting the teeth. And again, there are some exceptions to this, but in general, MRAJ, medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw, primarily affects the bones supporting the teeth, or if the teeth are missing, where the teeth used to be. I'll turn it over to Drs. Lane and Schwartzberg for their perspective as well. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Dr. Lane, do you want to go next? Yes. Well, first, let's get into the strontium. Strontium is strontium ranolate. And that drug is not approved in the United States. There's strontium citrate, where there is no data that it is protective for the skeleton. So I think uh, we have we would not give you recommendations regarding uh, uh, strontium. Uh, regarding the calcium and the vitamin D, yes, if you take very large doses of vitamin D, you can increase your your calcium. And there's now a new feeling that there's too much vitamin D being given. You need a reasonable amount, somewhere around 20 uh, nanograms per milliliter would be the right kind of dose to get, to get uh, the right kind of level to achieve. Uh, but if you're very low, you definitely need vitamin D. Uh, and But I, I've rarely seen calcium go up with vitamin D at that kind of range. Thank you. Thanks. And Dr. Schwartzberg, do you want to add anything as well? I think when you're deciding about um, whether to take treatments or not, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits. If you're already in osteoporosis at this point, and of course this depends on many other factors like family history, smoking history, your age, previous fractures, it may be worthwhile uh, taking an agent and taking a subcutaneous and IV agent, making sure that you do the the proper uh, oral care beforehand and during that therapy. And uh, that's a discussion that definitely should be had with your physician about the risks and benefits of taking a bone-stabilizing agent in that situation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and there's an, uh, an online question um, for Dr. Lane. Um, what is the role of magnesium in bone health? Is there any research that indicates the benefit of vitamin K2 in bone health? How can adequate intakes of these nutrients um, uh, be achieved? Well, magnesium is, is necessary for normal bone mineralization. And um, also it makes it easy, if you have magnesium in your calcium, 
you will have less likely to be constipated. So there are some preparations which have magnesium. Uh, the K2 is important and is important for uh, for making a bone. Uh, the question is who needs these agents? So people who've had significant bowel surgery, you're missing a segment of bowel, or you have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. People who have um, uh, who have used social issues such as drink too much. People who these people may have a problem with uh, with deficiency in vitamin and vitamin K2. Normal people with regular salads and normal diets probably will not need it, but it's not going to hurt you. Uh, but I wouldn't make a big point that this is going to make a, a, a major change in your skeleton other than in those people with significant bowel problems. Now, regarding magnesium, I think the... Uh, uh, I think the key here is just getting enough, and that's usually in your vitamin or in one of the combinations. And again, it's more of a problem with people who have eating disorders or, or who have uh, short bowel syndromes, uh, who've had, uh, 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 in, you know, such as part of their stomach removed also. So, so I think your GI surgeon or your GI nutritionist or the, these people can go over carefully and they will be able to tell you where it's critical to take these and in those other cases I think it's just a, a routine uh, multivitamin will probably provide enough material for you well, I'm, I, what do the others think? I agree completely with Dr. Lane really have nothing to add so we have really consensus here. That's really so. I hope everyone is taking this in because it's really important. And I should tell you all that you know this call will be on replay, both on the telephone and also um, as a podcast. So if you missed part of it and want to listen to it again, listen to it with somebody else, you can listen to it. It'll be up on a, on a replay in about probably two days. So it'll be available to you, um, and at least for a year or two, we'll be keeping it up because it's such an important call. And um, and so. Um, we have a question, another on, another telephone question, um, Sonia. Thank you. And our next question comes from Jacqueline W. Your line is now open. Thank you very much. My question resonates around denosumab and recent research, which seems to indicate that uh, metastatic circulating cells cannot find a niche if someone has been uh, taking denosumab uh, as a bone stabilizer, say, uh, stabilizer and uh, saber, saver, and I wonder if any of the doctors could comment upon this recent research. Denosumab has been around for 20 years, and I think there uh, that there has been some indicating uh, research that this might prevent circulating tumor cells from taking hold in bone. Thank you. Well, thank you for that um, excellent question. Um, Dr. Schwartzberg, do you want to start with that one? Yes, this is a very interesting area of research. So not only denosumab, but actually there's a fairly large body of research using zolindronic acid uh, to prevent bone metastases or to see, I should say, if the use of it to preserve bone health for women who have estrogen depletion, typically taking an aromatase inhibitor, benefit uh, in a secondary fashion with less chance of developing um, bone metastases. And the results are uh, somewhat contradictory. There is positive data both with denosumab and zoledronic acid in certain groups of women. The, the group that seems to benefit the most in reducing skeletal metastases uh, for patients who are at risk, and, and we're talking here about breast cancer specifically. Uh, to my knowledge, there has not been the same kind of studies in other cancers but because there is this um, particular milieu where we reduce estrogen and we also uh, give either bisphosphonates or denosumab, it's easier to study and it's important to study. There is in postmenopausal women the strongest signal that uh, using uh, denosumab or bisphosphonates may reduce the skeletal uh, metastases. However, not every study has uh, conclusively shown that. 
On the other hand, if you are needing these medications because you have osteopenia and have the risk of developing osteoporosis or already have osteoporosis and are on uh, an aromatase inhibitor, it's another indication that makes it even a stronger reason to go on a bone stabilizing agent because you may get the secondary benefit as well. Excellent. Thank you. Does anyone want to add anything to that? Or? Okay. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, this, this is this is a drug which is, is safe, and, you know, some people are concerned about uh, the cancer risk with some of these anti-osteoporotic drugs. Denosumab is, absolutely has no cancer risk taking that medication. And this is uh, Doug Peterson, if I may. It's interesting. Uh, these are such important comments that we're discussing. In July of this year, through the American Society of Clinical Oncology, we released a guideline that addresses some of these points. And one of the options that can be discussed with the patient and the dentist and the, the oncologist is the possibility the medical safety of discontinuing denosumab for even up to six months if it's medically safe to do so if extensive oral surgery is needed. Um, now, I say this very cautiously because, once again, the incidence of medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw is very small, 1 2 3% max, whereas the medical benefit of denosumab and these other bone stabilizing agents is extraordinary. So it's interesting how we can look at the, the benefit and risk and, again, as the team, make an informed recommendation to the patient. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, we have a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, Um, so this one, let me read this. Are there recommended natural calcium supplements as opposed to rock mineral supplements? Are there good plant-based supplements? I'm on Lupron. I try to keep calcium through diet, but always concerned whether I'm doing enough without a supplement. And Dr. Lane, do you want to start with that one? Well, you know, the the problem with calcium is if you take oral calciums, uh, there's a certain degree with the carbonates to get uh, have constipation, which is an annoyance to patients. And the calcium citrates appear to have less of a likelihood of getting that. In addition, the citrate will bind the oxalate and lower the risk of getting a kidney stone. So many people are drifting over toward calcium uh, uh, citrate. There, but there are other forms of, of calcium, and but I'm I think there's a lot of hype on many of these advertisings, and you're paying more money than you really should take. You know, it's El Cheapo is El Besto, and I think you should talk to your doctor very carefully about it. That you're getting, if you're spending more money for something, does it have a true justification? And your internist or your oncologist should be able to answer many of these questions. Now, regarding the the diet versus the pill, when you take a pill, there's a, a surge of calcium that is absorbed, and you get you get a, a peak that then goes down. If you take it in your diet, it's more even. And some of the concerns are that in terms of hypertension, the calcium may stimulate your hypertension, and therefore we would always prefer to take calcium. Uh, in diet, if possible, and you can get lists of things that will provide it, uh, or spread out your calcium over a period of time. And lastly, if you take all your calcium at one time, it's not effective because the uh, the maximum amount of calcium you can absorb is 500 milligrams at a single time. And therefore, if you take more than 500 milligrams, it'll be wasted. So I, I think there are ways to do this. Um, and I would recommend that we had heard we heard a, that there's a supporting element at this, co at this conference call. I'm sure they have a lot of data on how to take your calcium. Another source is the National Institutes of Health. They have educational forms that will explain to you how to take the calcium, the forms of calcium, and the preparations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and we have another telephone question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie S. Your line is now open. 
Hi. Um, I have osteoporosis, and I've been on three different drugs for it, and I've just started on Evenity, and it's extremely new. I was wondering if you have had any patients that have been on it and what the results are, please. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, we have, uh, it, you know, it came out about a year ago. I have a rule. Nobody goes on a new drug until the people in the real world try it slowly. And we at our institution have tried very selective individuals at our institution, and we've had no side effects. So we are pretty pleased with the profile. It's been around for over eight years, at least in clinical trials. It works through a different different mechanism than most of the others, and it appears to be have the most powerful agent in increasing uh, bone mass. But there are some disadvantages to it. it. For instance, it doesn't augment fracture healing or spine fusion, and you can't take it if you're having a recent uh, cardiac event, such as a stroke or a um, or a heart attack. Um, so it's it's there, and it's usually a second choice or a third choice. But if you are not progressing on the other drugs, it is becoming more attractive as a turn-to drug. Remember, it's only used for one year, and then you're going to have to go back on something else. I'm going to ask my colleagues. I don't think there's any data that it – what is its role toward cancer? I'm not aware of it being a – a drug associated with cancer risk. Are any of you, Dr. Schwartzman, do you know? No, it's, I'm, it's I'm really not aware a, of that, and I have very, very yeah. limited experience. So, right. um, But uh, there's no signal, safety signal in that regard right. that I'm aware of. Right. Right. Um, and we have um, one, another question here, and then we're going to be our last question. Um, so here's a question. I think we've we've talked about it throughout the call, so maybe it's a wrap-up. What can breast cancer patients with existing osteopenia osteoporosis who have to start aromatase inhibitor therapy do to maintain their bone density? I think Dr. Schwarzman should answer that. Okay, Dr. Schwarzman. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm happy to start. So a couple of things. First of all, um, Maintaining exercise, very, very important. Uh, the bones don't exist by themselves. They exist in a complex network with the, with the muscles, and um, the, they work together so that more exercise will strengthen the muscles and inherently will strengthen the bones. Um, good nutrition, very important in this case, and particularly the calcium and vitamin D. And checking a vitamin D level, um, we, we have been... Um, perhaps over-prescribing vitamin D recently, but if you have a low, a true low vitamin D level, that should be um, addressed with vitamin D supplementation. Um, making sure that there's nothing else going on like hypothyroidism or any other disease or uh, hyperparathyroidism, that, you know, things that other medical issues that might uh, play a role in this. And then, as we've talked about through the hour, uh, the f using a uh, medication to help stabilize the bones in this setting is, I think, very important. Patients can typically get the DEXA scans uh, every two years. At least Medicare will cover them every two years, and they should be done every two years during the time you're on uh, aromatase inhibitor therapy to make sure that the, the bone health is getting better, hopefully, and certainly not worse, in which case there might be a change in the anti-cancer medicine. And there are other, op other choices if uh, a person has osteoporosis and needs uh, anti-estrogen therapy as well. So uh, I think maintaining uh, your health through the combination of medications and healthy lifestyle can go a long way. I also recommend strongly against drinking to excess which can impact the bone health, and certainly smoking, which can as well. Well, I just want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an extraordinary call, and I have to say we'd like to do this more often, so stay tuned. Um, and I also want to thank all of you who actually um, have um, asked such great questions, which really enable our speakers to address issues of great concern to all of you. Um, as we wrap this program up, um, I just want to... Um, 
say that um, we do know that um, that many of you, of course, at times feel alone. But we want you now. We'd, we'd like you to know that even when you feel alone, that there are lots of resources out there for you, and many of them are free. And many of them, of course, start with your healthcare team as well. That, um, so, if you have a question or concern, may the questions you ask today please go back to your healthcare team with them as well. And for those of you who didn't get to ask a question or have a question or have another question that came to mind during the call, please go to your healthcare team. And we are going to give you in the evaluation forms many other resources to go to um, that have been mentioned during the call so that you'll have credible resources to go to for your information. That's very important and um, that you get information from very credible sources. Um, and so um, I really want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, do take advantage. If you, those of you who would like to take advantage of the services at Cancer Care, you can simply call us at our 800 number or, or, or um, visit our website, um, www.cancercare.org. Again, I want to wish you all a very fine day. And please know that there are lots of organizations out there, Cancer Care being one of them, American Bone Health another. But then there are so many other organizations out there that can really help you as well so that I want you to know that you're not, when you're feeling alone, you'll have that whole list of all the resources that we list for you. Some of them are around 24 hours a day, some of them not. And so, you know, take advantage of them. Um, and there's no limit on your calling them. None of us have a limit on you. You can only call once or twice. So I want to thank you all and have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.